Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers in association with the University of London. In this special series with global leaders, writers, and campaigners, we'll be reflecting on more than a year of challenge and change as we ask the question, how has COVID changed this? Today, I'm joined by the academic lecturer and author, Dr. Eliza Philby, the generation's expert and historian in contemporary values. From baby boomers to generation alpha, Eliza examines how the traditional life cycle is being reordered and remade in the 21st century. From the impact of us living longer to what we can expect in the post-pandemic age. Eliza, welcome to Changemakers. Oh, it's such a delight. Thank you, Michael. Well, listen, I mean, first of all, I'd, I'd love to get a working definition of generational <laughs> intelligence. Tell us a little bit about, about what, what it actually means. Well, it's a way of analysing society through age, basically, by breaking each group into generations. Those are arbitrary definitions, both in terms of time and the context that you describe them, the description you give to each generation. But it's trying to understand and give meaning to the fact, a basic premise, that we are all a product of our time. And, you know, depending on whether you encountered for the first time a smartphone at the age of 13 as opposed to the age of 36, as opposed to the age of 60, is really important because it quite it quite often determines your ability to use them, your ability to integrate them into your life, and your ability to integrate actually them into your future. So I think while I'm quite sceptical about generational classifications, right, I talk about them because I think they are a very convenient starting point. They're not an end point because I speak to lots of people and they're like, I'm not a baby boomer, you, you know, you're <laughs> describing something that's not my life or I'm not a millennial, but actually it's just a really, I think, useful way, particularly in respect to work and consumption, thinking about, you know, the age at which we are often determines the stage we are at, at work, and the age that we are quite often determines what we buy and right. our priorities with our money. So, I mean, just obviously setting myself out and in terms of my generation, but if I was to channel my inner Brucey and talk about the generation game, I mean, <laughs> and in terms of how many, how many generations of contestants are on this show in terms of, I mean, we're living longer, presumably. That means that the, the spread of generations that are interacting with each other, presumably there's, there's more of them. Give us a sense of, of that spread. You mentioned some of them, but just tell us a little, little of, the, of, of the kind of the key landscape. cohorts. Yeah, yeah sure. the landscape. Well, first up, we have the, the silent generation born really in the kind of era of the Great Depression from 1928 to 1942. And those are those in their 80s right now, the most vulnerable, obviously, during COVID. And they were called the silent generation because they were quite a conservative generation, certainly compared to the next generation that that came after them, which was the baby boomer cohort, born in the mid-1940s right through to the mid-1960s. And, you know, the baby boomers are synonymous with, you know, privilege. They were privileged to have access to and indulge and enjoy the social, sexual, uh, cultural liberations of the 1960s and 70s. And they were the benefactors of the economic liberalisms of the 1980s. So that's why one in five baby boomers in the UK is a millionaire. And it's why they are seen as the privileged generation. Next up, you have Gen X, and that's those born from kind of mid-1960s right through to 1980. And they're really the forgotten generation. No one really talks about them because there are fewer of them. They have not as much political, economic, and consumer power as millennials and baby boomers. And now they're the juggle generation. I call them the juggle generation because they're not only uh, many of them looking after their kids, but also managing looking after elderly parents. 
And then next up, you have the millennials. That's those born between 1981 through to 1996. And to understand millennials, I think we can rid ourselves of all those classic cliches of avocado on toast and, and selfies. The three things that are important and defining for that generation were the really mass expansion of higher education, the invention, obviously, of the smartphone, and also Great Recession, because what became cheap as millennials entered the workplace were things like eating out. That used to be really expensive travel that's why more millennials in the uk have passports rather than driving licenses and you know technology but then what became expensive well obviously living accommodation whether renting or buying education with the introduction of tuition fees childcare. so you would say the big ticket items in life and who have affluent millennials relied upon to pay for those big ticket items quite often the bank of mum and dad so you know they are no longer young and they're entering midlife because there's a new generational cohort that we've heard an awful lot about and are really finding their generational feet and that's generation z or z and that's those born between um, 1997 and 2010 they've been called coronials the covid generation and you know that's yes this is such a defining point for them because it's defined their education their networks their job prospects and has robbed them arguably of two years of their youth mm. but also they are the generation that grew up in a time of political turmoil the great recession has impacted their attitudes towards money obviously they are the social media generation they're much more entrepreneurial they're much more i think sophisticated and our understanding of privacy use of technology and I think they're much more fluid in their understanding of their brand their identity sexuality gender you know even political identity so they're Mm. very distinct from millennials and I would just add there's one more generation one more generation go on gen alpha those born from 2011 through to the present day and that's my kids and I'm assuming your kids as well and what we know about them well I think we can say that these are well you can definitely say they have a 50 50 percent chance of living to 100 for the first time in six generations it's gen alpha who have seen 50 percent of them born into rental accommodation Mm. And yet millennial parents spend 65% more, 65% more on their kids than Gen Xers did on their kids that are Gen Z. So we're spending more money on them, but we're living in rental accommodation. So that's that's the six generations. So six generations and roughly spanning about 100 years from Mm. what for... Yeah. So in, in terms of just let, let's sort of address the issue that there will be cynics that will say, well, look, you know, w- what that gives you is wonderful generalizations, but does mm. it give you specific understandings in the same way that sociodemographic information can provide you that other types of, I guess, methods of analyzing groups of people in society. I mean, what's the case that looking at society through the lens of age provides you with a better insight and understanding about behavior, attitudes, and really, I guess, insights? Well, I think I think it's a great question. And thank you for asking it, because I rarely get to kind of unpick the, the case for segmenting society by age. But I think you need to understand that generation generational categories are starting points. And within those generational categories, there are various nuances and differences that have to be taken into account. Your gender very much determines your experience, obviously. Your geographical location. You know, millennials in Strathclyde have had a very different experience from millennials in Beijing. Sounds obvious, but it's important to tease out those, those differences. Your age within that generational code 
cohort. I am a geriatric millennial. Yes, that is a real <laughs> term, a geriatric <laughs> millennial. And what that basically means is that those who are from sort of 35 to 40 who can remember dial up internet and and have a sort of you know a sort of sympathy empathy with gen x's and can't really relate to the younger generation of millennials. I'm, I'm loving i'm loving the idea of geriatric millennials <laughs> i mean <laughs> i know it, i don't know it's strangely i find it strangely reassuring as i hit midlife <laughs> to be called a geriatric millennial and and so where you fit in in that spectrum and also your education and and i say education but you know what you're really talking about there is socioeconomic status and i think if you look at millennials in particular who are the generation that have seen social social mobility stalling you've seen the middle class shrink across the OECD countries within the millennial cohort so education is a great dividing line within the millennial cohort you know you've got that divide haven't you between those millennials that went to university and those that did not Mm. but you've also got within that those that can rely on mum and dad and specifically the bank of mum and dad and those who can't because education interestingly to the generation that were encouraged more than most to get there and to get to to university has not offered them and has not given them the opportunities it was it was meant to bring so when when you look back over time you see these discernible eras that come and go the victorians or the edwardians marching into the first world war and dissolving out of the other side and you see changes i guess in terms of the dynamics the power dynamics of how a society functions where are the power where is the power you know when when you look at the issue of age dynamics today i mean i mean is there a is there a struggle is that how we should see it is there increasing harmony is there a is there an age group that that is very much in the ascendancy how, how does it play out today it's again one a really great question in that we hear a lot in the media who like for certain reasons to play up the culture war and that having a predominantly age dimension to it. And certainly if you look at the attitudes towards Brexit, attitudes towards transgender rights, there's certain sort of issues that Mm. can be segmented by age. However, there's a really interesting parallel story here that's not being told, which is, yes, we are seeing a rupture in values and a a challenging of the status quo by young people. And I think that's coming with a real frustration and a sense of injustice that the baby boomer cohort in particular have had and are continuing to have with the triple lock, a very lucky run of it. And that's, you know, there's all sorts of historical reasons why that was the case. And you speak to any baby boomer, they never see themselves as the privileged generation. <laughs> but there is a sense of, of, of injustice amongst young people. And that's why you get that whole kind of, you know, OK, boomer memes that has that are funny, but also have a lot of currency in them. So I think there is, there's this sort of economic generation gap, but then there's also the cultural one, which is always happening, by the way. And the baby boomers were the first disruptive generation that really challenged the status quo of their parents. And now it's coming full circle. But I think there's actually, as I said, a parallel story, which is the growing strength of the family. So Mm. if we go into the mainstream media, we'd say, um, or even some workplaces, you feel that the young and old are at 
constant loggerheads. But actually, you go within families. And I think this is one of the things that I think has intensified and strengthened over the course of this pandemic is the strength of the family. And we really are living in the golden age of the family. And there's an economic reason for that, by the way, is that a tie, you know, individuals have no longer really been able to rely on the state or the market and have increasingly relied on their family. And that's not just the bank of mum and dad, that's that's fathers are stepping up and seeing more and spending more time with their kids and working mothers spending more time with their kids than stay-at-home mothers did in the 70s. 40% of grandparents grandmothers, I should say, brackets, 40% of grandmothers in the UK provide some form of childcare for their grandchildren. And, you know, that there are more multi-generational households in the UK Mm. than there has been since the Second World War. We are so economically dependent on each other. And by the way, that's not going away because we have an aging society and where the aging at the social care crisis actually is only going to really be solved, but within the family unit, because the state won't pay, I doubt it, that we have this weird dichotomy where you have a generation gap in values, but actually a strengthening of a multi-generational landscape within the home. But but is is the golden age just economic necessity or is no. it something? Because the, the reason why I ask it is because I suppose the, the counterbalance to what you say is that, well, if you believe the, uh, well, not, not if you believe, I mean, what, what the data shows you is also that the home is a source of strife, of domestic violence, of challenge, of all all sorts of pressures that are, I, I guess have been intensified by the reality of COVID bringing us together. Is golden age the right phrase? I mean, for some people, it's it's well, a nightmare, golden, isn't it? Well, I say the golden age because there was so much bullshit, and I will say bullshit, um, written in the 1980s about the decline of the family. Right. And uh, Often by sort of Christian conservatives saying how terrible it was that teenagers were, were having children and that divorce was at its highest rate, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And actually now, <laughs> we've gone you know divorce is at its lowest rate teenage pregnancy is at its lowest rate families are staying together and generations are living under one roof because economics but also cultural affiliation is is to do with this so you know I think what's interesting if I look at my mother she left home at 16 and yes she 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 had a relationship with the mother after that point but my grandmother seemed very old in her 60s she dressed old she acted old she was an old lady with a handbag and and you know gloves whereas mm. my mother in at 70s you know shopping at Zara what? and and I think there is you know and I have culturally even politically and in terms of my values more in common with my mother than my mother had with her mother well, well when you say this is that I, I mean I think about the Beatles songs when, when I'm 64 I mean you know, <laughs> you know the, the idea now that 64 you would be would be that close to the grave I mean it, it seems extraordinary let's come let's come to this question though that we're you know we're addressing as part of this series which is how has COVID changed us I mean I suppose the big argument you've made thus far is that it's actually reinvented the idea of family um it's reinvented the necessity of family pick up the story there eliza in terms of actually how covid and how we will we may well look back on covid in terms of the changes that it's created for the society in which we live i think covid has accelerated shifts that were already happening right so i don't i I don't like this term the new normal i don't think it actually or accurately portrays what is happening i think we were already moving 
into a more flexible working environment. I think we were already moving to a um, greater appreciation for our health. I think there were lots of cultural shifts that were happening anyway, such as the strengthening of the family that has been intensified by COVID. I mean, if I could put it succinctly, I would say that COVID has shaped our relationship with four things. And that is time and how we spend it, family and you know how much and when we see them, the home, and again, not just how we time, spend time in the home, but how work infiltrates the home and our health. And when I say health, I mean a holistic understanding of health. So not just mm. physical health, but mental health as well. And I think that this is why, you know, flexible working and the hybrid working model is the future because there's no way that people are going to go back to five days in the office because all four of those are compromised by a five-day week in the mm. office. Okay, that's, that's an interesting factor. So when you hear big company bosses saying, you know, go back to the, go back to the office, James Dyson just, just today as we're yeah. speaking is, to, yeah. is talking about the, you know, the economic necessity of people just going back. I mean, but you're saying actually this is more than just the immediate threat of COVID, that actually the dynamics have totally changed, have they, in terms of the way we want to live in the future? So, I, I mean, the pandemic is going to have an impact long term because it was so protracted, it infiltrated every aspect of our lives and it was a global pandemic. You can't undo that. But it, it's going to have even greater impact because it was it, it, it didn't counter existing trends. It intensified them. And if we're talking about work, every generation has shaped work, how we do it and what it means to us. You know, that millennials weren't the first generation to start talking about purpose. You know, that was very much a baby boomer thing to think not just in terms of your salary, but your higher purpose in terms of what you do. But I think for the millennial generation, there was this whole, and this was whole discourse that happened in sort of 2019 around burnout. And that was the generation, remember, that, you know, was told if you go to school, you get your grades, you go to college, you will be guaranteed a stable middle-class life of opportunity and mm. purpose and personal fulfillment. And that obviously has been found wanting. And I think for millennials who had also the capacity thrown in because of technology to be always on, there was a sense of, hang on a minute, work is now infiltrating so much of our lives, it's not healthy. Mm. And I think what COVID has done is, is, is really given weight to that argument that let's stop thinking right in terms of work-life balance. That's a very kind of Gen X discussion. Let's think not how, you know, I can fit my life around my work, but how can work fit around my life? Mm. And, and is that... And, and is, just to add, if Dyson gets his way or Goldman Sachs get their way, that's fine, but you won't get the best talent. And let's face it, you won't retain the best talent. And that's the, the biggest loss to any company is a loss of talent. It's a really expensive way of governing mm. an organisation. Young people coming into the workforce aged you know 18 to 21 now expect flexible working there's well, your problem expecting it i mean the other thing i wanted to say or put to you was that i, I interviewed richard curtis that the movie producer and, and he was making the point that yeah you know he, he's a boomer and his generation were definitely thinking about the things you're talking about in terms of big changes and and i suppose also doing things about big challenges like climate and so on but he sort of he made the point that in his view younger generations today are just that much more active that it's not that the, the, the difference is not that the, that the generations weren't talking 
talking about it, but that the activism is much more apparent, less implied, much more out there. And actually that activism is now part of the workplace as well. I mean, is that something that, that you recognize, Eliza, in terms of the, I suppose, the nuances and differences between the age groups? Yeah, I mean, everyone has a megaphone now, not a smartphone, a megaphone. <laughs> you know, everyone can say not just what they're having for dinner, but what they think of, you know, Nike and how it treats its workers. And I think there is, you have to understand really anyone under the age of 35 thinks their opinions are really important. They're really bad at listening, but their opinions are really important. So that there is that inevitably shift that is going to happen. It's already happened. You can see it in in places like Google um, where you will have employees not unionizing because like previous generations did, but actually that activism taking a slightly different form Mm. fit for the modern world that involves really holding that company to account. So we're, you know, shareholder activism, we're going to see a rise in employee activism, no doubt about it. And it's going to be really challenging to companies. And, And I think that a lot of companies look at Gen Z and think, you know, well, can't we sort of shoehorn them into you know, our values. Well, you can't really, because I think you've got a generation that is used to being heard. Right. And I think they're going to make their views known. So when you say they think that their views are important, I mean, isn't it actually that they know their views are, are important because of the megaphone, because of the fact that actually we're living in this kind of volatile world of change where actually opinion really does matter? Well, yeah, except does it? I mean, I, I kind of think that... There's a lot of hypocrisy. There's even more hypocrisy now than ever. And we're all expected to have this sort of clean record of values. And, and you know, you go through people's social media and go, oh, my God, he said this in 2006. And, you know, let's let's cancel him. I just I just feel like there needs to be a greater acceptance that people's views change and evolve. And that's the whole process of learning and growing and aging. And, and it does worry me, that kind of culture of, of, of a sort of moral purity that is, I wouldn't say is synonymous with Gen Z. I would say it's actually synonymous with just being young. Right. And, you know, Curtis is right is that, you know, that same sort of activism and energy was there in the 60s. You just didn't have the technology or the means to get it out there in the same way. Right. So therefore, the power does exist. But I guess what you're saying is that there's a responsibility that goes alongside it in terms of how you balance it out in in the causes that that I guess mean so much to people. Yeah, I mean, I just I just think this, and this is not a young thing. It's not a criticism of young people. I think just generally, we've all become really bad at listening. Mm. And I think, you know, it's, we're so desperate to get our opinions out there or our views known that we're not, we're, we've evolved into a culture that's just really deaf. Right, so this then, that this then brings us to the question, I guess, pivotally about the what comes next and how how you feel about it. I mean, I mean, because some of the people I've in, interviewed for this for this series have felt pretty positive actually about the the uh, the possibility for change that actually the pandemic creates that kind of political earthquake moment or social earthquake moment that one person I interviewed described it as the brutal gifts of COVID that nobody can take away the tragedy but it does create the opportunity. But others, I 
I, I think it's fair to say, feel quite pessimistic, actually, about for, for many of the reasons that you say, actually, is that, you know, a society that's just so polarised, so divided, generations that can't really identify or speak with each other. How do you personally feel about it when you look at the kind of the future horizon of a world that may at some point, let's hope, come out of COVID and start to deal with the consequences of it? Well, okay, so a lot of people have had a very difficult, extremely challenging, whether it be through domestic violence, uh, loneliness, financial worries, extremely difficult lockdown. And there are obviously many families that have, you know, personally lost during this period of time. There's all sorts of trauma that will take a long time to process. But and let me give you some context. Last April, during the first lockdown, I interviewed a a number of kind of people from various professions, from delivery drivers to wedding planners, to travel agents, to investment bankers. And what was very immediate and very clear was that people really were enjoying this pause. They were enjoying this pause. And and the question I kept asking each interviewee was, you know, yes, but, you know, all these kind of, you know, skincare regimes, um, new fitness regimes, new cooking rotors, you know, your quality time with your children, they'll just go, right, when everything goes back to normal. And they all, you know, pretty much all of them went, well, no, 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 I'd really like, I'm getting so much from spending time with my kids. I'm getting so much from taking the dog for a walk and working from home and getting so much um, from not being as busy. And that really struck me to the extent that, When I started giving talks over Zoom to companies, I was like, this is permanent. This will be a long-term shift. And I think that, well, I used to go to a lot of conferences where the theme would be disruption, like 2018, 2019. And and now I'm like... Now they've really got it. (laughs) Now they've really got it. Um, And I think that what's very clear is that it's changed people. And I'm someone who analyzes society, right? I don't look at technology, just at how it affects people. I don't really look at um, politics. It's how it affects people's behaviors and values and attitudes. And this has shaped people. And I think that it's shaped the different generations differently. So just very briefly, I would say that baby boomers who have been redefining up until this point what it means to be old. You know, these were the children of the 60s who actually were still very much the children of the 60s. And I think actually for the first time, COVID made them feel vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. I say this in a personal context, because at the point of the first lockdown, I was saying to my mom, literally kind of, you know, standing in front of the front door saying, you're not allowed to leave the house. You are in your 70s and you are vulnerable. (laughs) But she was like, no. Does that that vulnerability, though, that that sense of mortality, does it change it for everyone? Or is it just the baby? No, it it changes. So you're getting... um, huge waves of baby boomers retiring early in the US. You're getting, I think you're going to see a real shift to baby boomers preserving their health as well as maintaining their health. I think that baby boomers are going to think more about inheritance and legacy and helping their children now. And I think they're going to be spending very differently. I think Gen Xers, I think, had the toughest time of it because, as I said, they're the jugglers, juggling with elderly parents and kids. And particularly Gen X women who I think perhaps don't have as, as enlightened husbands as millennial husbands and I think really struggled with those domest- that domestic setup during lockdown. I think Gen Xers 
are going to emerge as, as a really important demographic, kind of really pushing for a shift in working patterns. And then you've got millennials, this event happening to them, not when they were in their 20s, but in their 30s, most of them did this lockdown in small apartments with kids, suddenly realizing that proximity to the pop-up restaurant and coffee shop wasn't really valuable in a lockdown. And actually they want a suburban house, um, suburban semi with a garden, thank you very much. That shift they were always gonna make, I think they've made it earlier than they they would have done. So I think again, it's accelerated millennials move into middle age. And then finally Gen Z are the, the most important generation because as I said, they've had two years of their role, their youth taken away from them. And we are about to see a youth bulge in this country, in the UK. So like the baby boomers, and the reason why there was such a swell of youth culture in the 60s was because there were so many youths. So many of them. And we're going to see in the 2020s, basically the same thing. That wave of immigration that you had in the noughties are now going to hit their late teens, early 20s. And so if they haven't got economic like prospects, job prospects, educational prospects, you know, and and I think they're just going to be so influential in terms of culture, values and disruption. I think, you know, you, you the real tension now is not going to be between baby boomers and the rest. It's going to be between millennials who want a nice quiet time in suburbia, thank you, and Gen Z who are seeking to rock the status quo. Now, we're almost out of time, Eliza, but I don't want to finish without addressing your own phenomenal story. You've got a new mm. podcast coming up called It's All Relative, and relative and relations mean a lot to you. Tell us about this, this kind of multi-century story. So family has always been, it sounds quite trite to say this, family has always been really important to me, but basically I still live in the era I grew up. And my father, which is... My father grew up in Tooting. It's in Tooting, South London. And my father was actually born in the house that he's buried in. And we buried him in the garden under the apple tree where he first met my mother. And he lived in that house his entire life. And my father was quite chaotic, mad, creative hoarder. And in fact, my mother, who's currently living with us now because she's having the house renovated is sifting through all of this kind of memorabilia. So we've just done the attic and we found two tortoise shells. My dad had two tortoises in the 1950s. The shells are in the attic. Newspaper copies from when the Titanic sank in 1912. We've got, my dad had a parrot. We found all the parrot's feathers and we found a seat from the coronation. So, I mean, it really is. It's not cash in the attic. It's more like crap in the attic. (laughs) And and so in a way, like, you know, I think, why am I so interested in generations? I think it's because it's so, it's been so prescient in my family because we grew up in a multi-generational household with my grandmother living with us and and now I've got exact same sort of scenario because my mother is temporarily living with us and so my hallway is kind of dominated by this buggy which is my one-year-old's buggy and my mother's shopping trolley so I've got this kind of multi-generational sort of obstacle course to uh, navigate in my hallway. Well so (laughs) and and I suppose the last question I mean having all of this deep expertise about the generations does does it allow you to do it better personally does it allow you to navigate the kind of the highs and lows of what it means to be multi-generational? Do you know I would just urge you everyone out there to and maybe you have kids that are in their 20s now so maybe this is kind of obvious to you but if you're if you're in that weird phase in your life where your kids aren't yet in their teens and 20s go and speak to them and hang out with them and suck their you know energy suck out their energy because I think you know talking to Gen Z for me is just like eavesdropping on the future 
because they have such different values and ways of thinking about the world, but also, you know, are really kind of mirroring their parents' values as well. So it's just fascinating to me. So Mm. I'm in that weird life where I I have contact with baby boomers and Gen Alphas and millennials, but actually speaking to Gen Z, I kind of force myself to, to do as much as I possibly can because they really are different. And I would just add the podcast is this very thing because I'm looking, I'm interviewing two generations from the same family trying to get a sense of you know that generational difference within the family but those sense of uniting values and i i feel like it's kind of a feels a bit like sort of eavesdropping on a sunday roast oh i i love that phrase eavesdropping on the future eliza philby thank you so much for joining me on change makers what a great what a great conversation thanks michael change makers is brought to you by the campaigns firm seven hills and presented by me michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?